0: Gentlemen, my name is Ryan, and I'm here with the Passion Fruit Podcast, and uh, and I'm also here with Graham. Good day. Okay, Graham, what is it that you are passionate about?
1: Well, I'm passionate about a lot of things, Ryan. Uh, I would say uh, the thing that probably I'm most uh, currently passionate about, uh, partly because it's on my mind, I have a tournament coming up uh, the next, uh, not this coming weekend, but the weekend just after, is uh, medieval combat medieval combat yes and there's a whole bunch of different varieties of it um some people might be familiar uh, there's one type called HEMA, historical european martial arts okay and this tries to recreate sort of like a dual type context so mm-hmm. two two people and they go into historic manuscripts that have been lost in museums for a long time and some curator finds them again and then Uh, People translate them and look at the manuscripts that were made by these uh, fight masters of old, and they translate them from ancient Italian or ancient German or wherever they come from. And uh, then people all over the world, but particularly in European countries, are now having a resurgence and uh, reenacting these martial forms, usually with weapons, but also unarmed as well. And uh, the other type is trying to recreate uh, sort of a tournament type feel mm. with knights with armor and all the panache that goes with that. And so that's the one that I'm going to uh, this round. And so that'll be up in Calgary, actually. And, and so we have people from uh, all different parts. Uh, we've got people coming to this one in particular from the Yukon, from B.C., from Saskatchewan and here in Alberta from all over and uh, there's probably about 50 or so fighters and we all come together over a a long weekend and smack each other with weapons. So it's a great deal of fun. Um, And the winners of these kind of competitions will join Team Canada um, along, because there's sort of an Eastern group and a Western Canadian group. Mm -hmm. And then uh, they'll represent in the international competitions, which are usually in some castle in Europe. That is really cool. It's also it's also something that uh, I don't
0: I don't know that many people that are that are into how do, how does one uh, how does one discover you know what uh, medieval combat that's where it's at
1: yeah How'd that Um uh, so well for me anyway I had always been interested in such things so starting you know growing up as a, a young man uh, who lived on the west coast there were t- plenty of trees around. Uh, and those trees have on them sticks and those are great for smacking your brother and i had an older brother <laughs> who uh, was more than happy to give as well as receive in the smacking department and so we smacked each other with sticks and then we upgraded from that to um, all sorts of other manner of things like uh, pool noodles uh, liners for we had these golf uh golf bags and they had these plastic liners that you could put the uh, golf clubs in and we nice. smacked each other with those and uh, garbage can lids, the plastic ones, they make for yep. a good shield. Yeah. And so I started with those sorts of things and then eventually I found online um, these sort of art forms uh, and just then these were starting to become more interesting, more on the internet. Um, and I looked at a couple of different organizations but there was none really I had access to join. Mm. And then it wasn't until uh, I moved out uh, for university uh, that I joined this club, this university club, and uh, that was kind of the beginning of that story for me. And so uh, they were welcoming and um, brought in all kinds of new people. And so I met a number of friends there. And since then, uh, there's now been a few different like groups in our area that have uh, come to be doing various different rule sets and whatever they might be interested in, and so I'm in one that primarily does the combat side of things, Um, and so that's how I got started in it, but I I think for a lot of people, um, this is something that's part of the, like, public imagination, Mm -hmm. you see that, like, um, and swords in particular, Mm -hmm. so... Uh, even in you know fantasy settings uh, lightsabers, this sort of thing people the sword is so iconic and uh, even on like a biblical level you see that it's used in imagery mm-hmm. um, that sort of permeates uh, throughout and and I think that sort of uh, magical captivation part of it is is bringing in um, all those sorts of things that people um, imagine but then also looking at the historical side of things which maybe is not quite so you know rose colored mm. but uh we don't have to have all of the uh, death and disease we can just have fun <laughs> and so at the end of the day hopefully we go home uh not actually killing our friends yeah I, I hear that's uh that's that's a good way to go about it
0: man so um you you said that there was there was a two style, and you you more do the latter one. What was, what was the name of that one again? So
1: the, the first one is called HEMA. Yeah. Um, and that's usually just one-on-one. Okay. And um, normally people there will wear sort of like sportive-looking type gear. Um, and it's, in a sense, it's, it looks very much like Olympic fencing um, and is trying to be what Olympic fencing, I think, maybe was at one point okay. until it kind of got... Anytime you have a martial art and it turns into a sport over time, it loses a lot of its martialness, mm, and it yeah. ends up just becoming kind of a game. And so, unfortunately, for the sake of Olympic fencing, it's kind of lost any vestige that it had of swordplay. Okay, uh, yeah. And so, the, the HEMA world, even though they do have sportive competitions, um, they often still will try very hard to practice techniques, even techniques that you can't use in the competitions because they want to maintain this sort of historicity of the piece. And then the other type is called Buhert, which is an unfortunate name, (laughs) Um, but uh, what it basically means is like medieval tournament. And so what we do is we look at the rule sets that they used in historic medieval tournaments, rule sets that they had to make sure that One, they could put on a good show without killing their fellow knights Mm -hmm. Um, and that uh, royalty could engage in a lot of these. uh, King Henry VIII was in particular famous for wanting to be uh, in these tournaments and for many uh, people in royalty it was an opportunity to show off your wealth, Mm. um, how brave you were and so on without actually getting too hurt and so they would set up these armories and oftentimes that were working just for the the royal family and their um, compatriots, and uh, they would put on these fancy tournaments, and oftentimes they involve things like trying to knock papier-mâché characters off each other's heads, Or the ones that were a bit more combative, they would have blunted weapons and they would say no stabbing and so on. So Mm. they could make sure that they could just smack each other uh, to their heart's content and it would normally be by points. Or by how we normally do it, which is when you have group battles, um, when you have three points of contact with the ground. And the premise here is that it's very difficult, um, even with sharp weapons, to kill someone who's fully armored. Mm -hmm. and so the only real way to, to um, disable such a person would be to take them onto the ground and pile onto him with all of your peasant buddies, and somebody would pull out mm. a shank and kind of go at it in the eye slits and any other gaps that they could find. Yeah. But normally at that point, it's m- more in your interest to just take the man ransom and get a lot of money. Because okay. if he's got a suit of armor he's probably got people back home who love him dearly and are willing to pay handsomely. Mm -hmm. And so in those circumstances, they would try to opt in ransom. And it's trying to therefore recreate this idea that if the person is down on the ground, it's not that you can't get up, but somebody can jump on top of you and then it's really difficult to get up if someone's wearing a suit of armor. And so we say when you hit the ground, and we call that three points of contact, so you you Mm -hmm. put out your hand or some such, uh, then you're out. And so we'll have... In the melees, we'll call them, or the group battles, we'll Mm -hmm. have maybe a 5-on-5 or 10-on-10, and sometimes as much as, like, 50-on-50. In the uh, big tournaments, we don't have that many people uh, doing it here, but in the sort of international ones, you'll have these large swaths of humanity, Mm -hmm. and then, yeah, you're out when when you hit the ground.
0: Sounds like there's a ton of, like, historical accuracy and stuff to this. It sounds like you or is this more just something that you've kind of uh gotten more interested in and and looked into or is this like something that's just kind of baked in and so if you if you get into this world you you learn about this well
1: i think there's sort of different strokes for different folks some people come at it for all different reasons so some people they enjoy the camaraderie of going in with your band of brothers and sisters Um, and some people enjoy uh, uh, getting to smack their friends without any legal recourse. Um, (laughs) Most people, I think, enjoy either the romantic side of the medieval uh, pageantry, or they're actually history uh, aficionados who want to try to recreate it, because in many senses, um, and you see this amongst sort of reenactor-type communities, And I was first exposed to this. I worked at a heritage town called uh, Fort Steele. And it was exploring this Victorian period. But there was a sense that you didn't really know something until you lived it. And you could Hmm. only learn so much about history just by reading books uh, to the point where you had to actually pick up the tools that were used historically and wear the clothes and live the life Hmm. to get into the mindset of those people. And, um... So in some senses, the historicity is imposed. So, for instance, with the the armored combat, um, if you want to fight in the international tournaments, your your kit has to match uh, existing historic originals. Okay. And it not only has to uh, match in terms of their museum examples of what you're wearing, but they also have to match the same... So you can't have a German Mm. helmet and an Italian uh, shield and so on. And so they have to match a certain culture and they also have to match within a certain time period. And so when we think of the Middle Ages, we're thinking of uh, a span of hundreds of years. And people normally are lumping anywhere from maybe um, like 700, 900 A.D. all the way up until maybe 1600 and so, yeah, that's a huge amount of history. So we're, we're talking about hundreds of years. And so if you have a piece of kit and it's separated from 200 years, uh, anybody in living in that time would mm-hmm. say, why do you have something that's so old? Yeah. Um, and so to a modern audience, if you think about a car that's maybe, maybe 50 years old, we're now thinking, well, that's a classic. Mm. And so they say that... Um, it really has to be within a generation or two okay. to presume that you would have something that maybe your grandfather had. So everything has to be within a time frame, as well as a, a cultural, um, regional frame, and um, and the pieces need to kind of match each other in that respect. Okay. Well,
0: speaking as someone who, you know, doesn't really know anything about this sort of stuff, how how much does thing do things change with that? Like, is there because I think chainmail, and I'm like, chainmail, that was just a thing. Full plate armor. Maybe there's, maybe there's different like fluted helmets and yeah. stuff like that, but mm-hmm. how different is it, is it from, the first, from the 900 to the 1600?
1: Right, and this is kind of a, a bit of a... Uh, we, when we think about these things, we've imposed a sort of modern mindset, even in our terminology. So say, for instance, uh, uh, one that you mentioned is chainmail, which people yeah. often say when they're thinking about what we would call mail. Okay. um and uh, the chainmail was added by victorians and so it's very difficult when we're talking about these things to separate what people projected on it when they were looking at pieces okay. uh, versus what the original people who built them and used them were thinking and so it's hard to tell sometimes maybe something's in a museum mm-hmm. but isn't in a museum because it was really nice and nobody wanted to use it, but it was so expensive it got passed down. But it wasn't okay. actually that good. Okay. And then maybe something was munitions grade and it was used all the time. But then it got all rusty and then somebody converted into something else. Mm-hmm. And now it's lost. So there, it's hard to tell. And then we also have artistic illustrations. And so a lot of what we base, mm-hmm. because yeah. we only have so many actual pieces. And so some of what we base off of is effigies. So for those who don't know, those are... Um, intricate carvings where somebody's grave um, oftentimes in inside churches where they were less exposed to elements Hmm. uh, they would be buried and they would often be buried in their armor and they would have a marble or some other stone carving of themselves wearing their armor uh, that was laid on top of their their grave and we would call these effigies and if you look at them a lot of them are in such detail that you can see the rivets you can see the buckles on them and so on and so we'll recreate armor not just based off the physical pieces that we have but we'll base them off of these stone carvings and we'll base them off of artistic interpretations but sometimes it's difficult to tell if you don't know what you're looking at you might be looking at say a, a mythological or a biblical account and so there'll be a painting of something but it might be fantasy from the period so it might be medieval fantasy okay and so we think wow that helmet looks really cool i'd like one like that when they say no 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 that never existed that was that was fantasy even then Mm. um and so uh, people will compile all these sorts of things together and they have communities of both armorers and also people who consider themselves more fighters and um so this kind of community builds together kind of a body of knowledge And those things put together creates uh, a spectacle that when people are watching, they maybe don't appreciate the differences between those things. Mm -hmm. But uh, the more you study the history, you understand why the changes and why the differences between regions and the, the general understanding of like the changes are sort of this pressure testing where you have like one generation and another generation, another culture meets another Community, mm-hmm. and if they're going to go to war, which often happened in Europe, mm-hmm. um, then if you had something that was better or a better tactic, then you might prevail. And people say, "Oh, next time we'll get them." And okay. so this this sort of pushed the envelope to rapidly allow for a progression. And the material science was another thing that allowed for a progression. And so it mm-hmm. wasn't just that they didn't know how or what was better in many cases there were other technologies that needed to come to light in order to allow for different types of production Mm -hmm. whether that's um, say uh, steel production um, and the refinement of the steel production to move away from bronze weaponry um, or allow for longer blades let's say on swords Um, and then once you had these these sort of systems refined, then we could get more elaborate shapes that they didn't... It's not that they didn't have the skill to produce those, but it might just not be in the interest. Or perhaps, like, when we look at some of the fanciest armors, Mm -hmm. a lot of those are actually tournament armors, because mm-hmm. um there was a greater emphasis on safety especially for royalty who might be engaging in such things and could pay for it yeah. whereas a a knight who might be going to battle might not want to be wearing quite so much armor and might not care that it's so expensive and so fancy yeah um because maybe they have something else that they want to spend their money on and so it's not so much just a matter of ability but more about a, um maybe a desire and yeah. we can see this even today. So, say, for instance, with um, uh, rocketry. So, there was uh, a ability to go to the moon mm. before I was born. And it's not that people forgot how to go to the moon, but there wasn't... A pressure to go to the moon yeah or a particular good reason to go to the moon and so we might say that our technology now is better and people are obviously making plans to go back mm-hmm. and hopefully in my lifetime we'll see people going to moon and mars and so on mm-hmm. but if the outside of some kind of external pressure or internal pressure pushing people to advance their disciplines these kind of disciplines are either forgotten or just abandoned okay and you, I think if you want to, um, even though, say, for instance, with the rocketry, we know how in terms of um, we could ask people, we know the math, we could make it happen. But when we actually go to try to do it, we find there are lessons that maybe were learned at the time that we've since forgotten. Mm, yeah. And uh, we have to relearn those lessons, but you only learn them by... Uh, trying it for yourself and I think so that's what a lot of this uh, medieval combat um, is about is trying it for yourself and that's the best way to learn and to rediscover what lessons that the people of old uh, learned and Mm -hmm. can still teach us today Um, and in many respects I think people are the same physically our bodies are virtually the same yeah and so even though technology might separate us in some respects and it's hard to adopt the same mindset. Um, What's amazing to me is that the techniques still work, Mm. the armor still works, and so the closer that we get to the originals, we find, oh, this is the reason why they made them like this. And you might think, hey, I could maybe improve on that, and maybe you can, but only once you've really understood Mm -hmm. uh, the way that they were done before. And more often than not, when you discover the way it was done before, you find the reason why it was done that way before and it's only through trial and error that you actually get to understand that that is
0: that is really cool <laughs> so um, we, we might come back to history a little bit later, yeah. but uh, I'm really curious about um, you said that you're an- that you're entering a tournament uh, coming up right quick what's uh, what do you uh, are you are you going to be doing melee or some dueling or something like that? And what do you use? What's what's yeah. your style?
1: Um, so being somebody who's rather tall and lanky and skinny, perhaps, um, I I have a, a funny style that's adapted to running away from strong brutish men, and so um, most it works. of uh, most of my techniques are are about uh, distance management. And so I typically favor weapons that I can manage the distance better with. Okay. And so my favorite category is pull arm uh, because then I have a long uh, stick with a big Mm. metal thing on the end. And I can keep uh, big scary people away from me. And if they get too close, I've got a big lever that I can push them to one side and escape out the back. Mm There's a number of different categories we'll be fighting in. Uh, There's some that we just are, we're always uh, refining the rule sets to make sure that they're safe and to allow for different types of weapons. So this is the first year that we've added Saber, which I'm looking forward to. So we're going, the ones I'm going to be in are Saber, uh, Sword and Shield, which is um, a a wooden shield on the one hand and a single sword in the other hand. Okay. Uh, Sword and Buckler, Buckler is a small, circular round uh well circular round (laughs) uh a small metal round shield that's normally center grip okay and so a sword and buckler and um and polearm and then we also have another category called pro fight and in this one Mm -hmm. uh, it's a different kind of rule set and so uh, we'll use similar weapons to the other ones i mentioned Mm -hmm. um but uh with this the the rules are a bit more like you might see in boxing where you're you're scored based off of more criteria than just hits, so it's like hits, ring control, aggression, okay. uh, this sort of thing, and we also allow takedowns in that one, and so um, and you can use other techniques like grappling and throws and what have you, and Ooh, so throws and armor that sounds yes, exciting. Yes, it's very exciting, um, uh, and so uh, and that that kind of evolved out of another sort of pressure where. People were looking to make it more cinematic, yeah. more spectacular. And uh, you'll see people will do this, this pro fight. The way it actually originated was in various different places. They would be having MMA tournaments. And kind okay. of as like a crowd warming up event, they would bring in two fighters in armor and they would have one of these pro fight duels uh, huh. before the main act of the MMA fighters. And so this kind of idea of saying, well, can we mix the MMA um fighting style but also do it with uh medieval weapons and so on. And so that's another category that we've introduced. I don't typically or well I haven't yet, I probably won't do the melees. Uh the melees are when you have a large group fight. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason for that is because the rule sets in those aren't anymore based around points or and you're you're not just with a single combatant. Yeah. And for me and my wife is uh, uh, she's a nurse, and she's protective of her husband. And I want to go to yes, I want to go to work the next day, and so I don't do those because just for me and my personal level of comfort, um, I don't feel uh, confident because uh, there's really no way to see where everyone is, mm-hmm. and so you can kind of get blindsided. And the biggest dangers in the sports are really falling body weight that's uncontrolled, mm. and. Um, that's probably the main one uh perhaps uh some cumulative head trauma but our helmets are very padded mm. and very thick yep. so that's not as big of a danger uh, particularly in a one-on-one setting because you can see the blows coming you can block and so on yeah um it's more that if you're getting hit from say behind and you can't see it coming it's kind of uncontested you're not prepared for it um And I mentioned falling body weight because when you're in a full suit of armor, it's very difficult to injure the person um, just with hits from weapons or punches or kicks. Mm. Um, The greater threat is that somebody else who's wearing a big suit of armor falls on you. And so you end up with sort of a dog pile and maybe your leg is going the wrong way and it kind of gets your knee twisted or some such. So I stay normally away from the melees just because it seems a bit too unpredictable for my taste. And I feel I have enough... I have enough uh, categories that I'm already in. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, the other categories you see are uh, longsword um, and, and a few others. Uh, we do greatsword, which is kind of like a big longsword. Okay. And um, and we are introducing a, a few uh, others as well. Um, and then in the Hema world, um, there they allow thrust because the weapons are usually mm. a bit lighter. Uh, the steel is very springy. To allow for thrust to be done safely, with a little sort of rubber cap on the end. Okay. And they'll typically wear fencing masks with a bit of covering on the back of the head, and um, they'll do other categories that involve more thrusting. Okay. And so things like rapier and um, what have you, um, and that allows for a lot more of the sort of historic techniques. And so when you when you kind of put the two together, you get more of a, a, a gamut of the two. Um, the HEMA side teaches you about how to fight historically um, because it includes basically all the techniques that could have been done. Okay. And then I think the, the armored combat shows you, well, how does the tournament flavor and all the historicity of the clothing, the attire, um, how does that look and how does that play out? And, um, and it has the sort of aggression and the team spirit mm-hmm. and the tactical movement between multiple people. And so between the two of those, I think you end up with kind of a well-rounded both um, understanding of the history and also how the martial arts were, were fought historically.
0: That is very cool.
1: Uh, I, I do have a question on that. Do they have, like, jousting and, and, and things yes. with cavalry uh, or so, with horses, yeah. I guess? Uh, yeah, so uh, at the tournament that I'm going to be, there's also a jousting um, hmm. group. And the Justin group is uh, not for either the faint of heart or the empty of wallet. Mm, um, fair. So, uh, justing has a high barrier to entry, both in terms of uh, you need to spend a fair amount of time as ground crew uh, before you're allowed to actually do some justing. Okay. Um, next, you have to uh, have a lot of horse riding ability. Mm. Um, And so many people around this part of the world, they they have familiarity with um, horse riding, but uh, that's a skill that people need to acquire if they don't already. And along with that, all the horse care and maintenance and transportation costs and Mm -hmm. so on, um, that's a whole nether gamut. And then you also need a suit of armor that's actually designed for jousting. The suits of armor that are designed for jousting and that are designed for foot combat are actually um, not... Uh, totally interchangeable. Uh, okay. So you do need to have certain pieces that are somewhat dissimilar and um, and so you can't sort of just hop from one to the other. although most uh, uh, historic jousting kits, uh, you could take off pieces and then they would be suitable for a foot combat. Okay. You can't take a, a foot combat suit and jump on a horse and be ready to go for justing as much. Okay. Particularly in the way that it's done nowadays, it's scored with a, it's called a, a gridded grand guard. It's, it's a piece that goes on your shoulder and you get points for hitting the person there or unhorsing the person or mm-hmm. breaking your lance. Um, and the way that it's done nowadays normally uh, to protect the the rider somewhat Um, and to get more broken lance hits Mm -hmm. um, is they'll have a solid lance and then on the end there'll be a sort of uh, softwood little extension and this softwood extension will normally have cuts in it to facilitate it a little bit easier to break. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously historically they would have a solid lance and then at the end it would have a metal spike on the end and so in, in this modern case, uh, what we're aiming for is either breaking of the lance, and just the tip on the end makes it a little bit cheaper because you can just replace that yeah. broken bit each time, or an unhorsing, um, or just a touch where you hit the person but the lance doesn't break. And normally the scoring is uh, one point for a touch, uh, I think three points for a breaking of a lance, or five to unhorse your opponent okay and uh, the horses obviously have to be well trained for all this yeah um and they're normally quite raring to go the way that it normally works is uh once the horse is sort of looking down the line uh, that they're going to run, and they run on opposite sides of a, a wooden fence. Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as they see that, they're off, ready to go. And so sometimes you'll see a horse that is like in the mode, and they'll start running ahead of time because they're so excited. Huh. And say no, 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 okay. And they walk the horse back in a sort of embarrassing fashion, and then go again for another <laughs> another round.
0: Interesting. So uh, so that's uh, that would have been born out of like cavalry charges and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and just gamified, I guess. Or right. was there? Or was there yeah, more to jousting so, than just that.
1: So, originally, um, jousting was just knights uh, on horseback, so cavalry, and then they would hold a spear. Okay. And, uh, and they would use the spear with, so they would have some added length over any people that were on the ground. Mm-hmm. And they would normally have a number of backup weapons as well. So, when people think of swords, they think of that as a battlefield weapon, but it really was more like a sidearm. So, if you think about like, okay. modern military uh, would carry a rifle and then as a sidearm they would have maybe a pistol. Okay. So you can think of a sword as like uh, comparable to a pistol. Okay. And, so, and this is the same in various different cultures. Normally uh, a lance or a polearm would be your battlefield weapon and then you would switch to a sword when things got a bit more close and personal or your lance got lost or broken or mm-hmm. stuck in some poor fellow and then if you got even closer than that you would have a dagger Um, and your dagger would normally be on your back and so that you could sort of reach behind yourself and you pull that out and you'd have one last ditch and so you'd have multiple layers of of weaponry depending on the situation and what you were uh, presented with and what you had left Uh, as far as the the progression there so they had their their spears and they would just hold those Mm -hmm. and then they started couching them under their arm and so you kind of put it in this sort of stereotypical jousting position yeah. where it would be kind of tucked under your arm and that provided a bit more support and then that allowed them to get a bit longer of a mm. of a reach with their spear and a longer spear. And then they found that they would put a uh, sort of flaring piece on the front and the back so they could tuck them under their arm and when they hit, instead of just holding it with their hand, mm-hmm. it would sort of collapse into their shoulder and they could deliver a more powerful thrust this way and that way they could penetrate through some kind of armor or defense and then um the next evolution was these lances as they got heavier and heavier uh they needed a way to be able to hold it and so they created a lance wrist which would go onto the armor and it would be a little piece that would sit under your right um, arm Mm -hmm. and it would be attached to your cuirass your breastplate and so you would hook it under there and that way you kind of created a pivot point. And so your arm was just really mm-hmm. pointing it from one direction to another, mm-hmm. but you would have it pointed up and when you were ready to do your charge, you would bring it down and you would bear it onto your opponent. And of course they would do it on either the left side or the right side, but when they do jousting, they always do it uh, where they cross the um, uh, lances. Um, and that way when they're hitting, they're always hitting in the same spot. And so it's a lot more predictable. And you see okay. that as it got turned into a sport, um, all of the armor started becoming very asymmetrical. And so there would be okay. yeah. uh, the right side where you had your, your lance, and that would be much less armored, and the left side where you're going to take the hit was always much more heavily armored. Mm-hmm. So you have your reins in that hand, and its job was to just get smashed. And so, in a battlefield sense, you wouldn't see that quite so much yeah. because the attack might come from anywhere. But once it started becoming particular to jousting, people were much more securely stuck into their suits, and they would have additional plates on top of their armor going on the left side and going into their neck and sort of down their left arm. Mm -hmm. And we would have these suits that were kind of lopsided looking to accommodate for that. Very cool. Yeah.
0: Man, I, I, I've, I've never seen a tournament, but uh, I really want to now. Well, you're
1: more than welcome. If you, if you're coming, anybody who's listening to this, which I, I don't know if you'll hear it in time, but uh, yeah, it'll be at the Wild West Exhibition Grounds, and that'll be in Calgary uh, the weekend of the 20th, 21st, 22nd of August. Uh, yes, August. Okay. So. Um,
0: is it? Are there uh, tournaments very often?
1: So we normally aim for one big one each year in the summer, and we have other ones throughout the year, and people will uh, who want to qualify for the team will sort of amass points throughout these tournaments, mm-hmm. people who perform the best on average through a number of tournaments will then be sort of selected to form the contingent that will go okay. to the, the team. So in the same sense as maybe if you are an Olympic team and you come from a small country Mm -hmm. uh, there isn't too much competition Mm. Um, whereas if you're in a a large country maybe the competition to get into the Olympics might be just as fierce and so for a number of years it was sort of anybody who could afford to go and had a suit of armor and wanted to uh, fly over to Europe basically got to be on Team Canada but now as the sport has grown it's getting a little bit more competitive and so Uh, we just take whoever most wants to go and uh, of those people who who has performed the best
0: when you say olympics do you mean like the summer olympics that are happening right now is there is there is there a whole medieval combat thing that i've just been no sorry i was just using (laughs) that as an example oh okay okay
1: um, that in some countries you have to compete against your your uh, citizen colleagues you're fiercely the highest levels get into one of the two places let's say that get to be in gymnastics oh, okay um, so in in our sports i i don't know if i would go so far as to say the olympics and it isn't in the olympics uh because there's already uh, olympic fencing in the olympics yeah but you can see there is room some people have thought about adding hema to the olympics mm-hmm. um because that one is a little bit uh, more refined it's a little bit easier to understand in a and the rules are a little bit more uh, codified. Um, right now, the the armored combat sport, although the, it is, in a sense, over a thousand years old, um, the resurgence is fairly modern. Okay. So the rule sets aren't particularly codified. Mm. Uh, and so anytime you also move into a sport, like we mentioned at the start of this podcast, mm-hmm. um, there is kind of a danger where some proponents of the art aren't very comfortable with it becoming so codified because they see um and the same thing has happened with other things that have gone into the olympics so say for instance um, with judo Mm. um, a lot of people who were i think they're called judokas something like that um, a lot of people who practice sort of an uh, original judo feel that the sport uh, judo because uh, they wanted to retain the particular flavor of judo uh the it has lost some some things along the way mm-hmm. and so say for instance you're not allowed to grab people's legs okay. um when you're trying to throw them because they didn't really want it to look like wrestling and wrestling also lost a little bit of what it was um historically maybe with the Greeks um, once they decided okay we're not going to have any kind of and people sort of codify all these sorts of things so that the sports are kind of separated a good example like as you mentioned the summer olympics Mm -hmm. um so they have in the olympics as you probably know they have taekwondo where they wear headgear um boxing where they wear uh, headgear at least for the female athletes Mm -hmm. and people are punching each other kicking each other in the head just fine Mm -hmm. and Uh, You see they also added karate, maybe just for this year because it was in Japan. We'll see if it stays. But they added karate for the first time this year. And uh, the winner um, uh, won despite being kicked in the head and knocked out. Uh, The reason being that um, they decided for their rule set, they wanted it to be controlled and you got points for kicking people in the head, but if you kick them too hard in the head and you knock them out, then they said, no, you're going to be disqualified for that. Oh, okay. And so this uh, very good practitioner kicks his opponent out in the head in the gold medal match. And so the person who hits the ground wakes up to discover that he's won. Mm. And so there was a bit of a decry from people yeah. saying, like, well, how can you win uh, after being kicked in the head yeah. when you're supposed to be you know, a practitioner of karate? and um the the person who got the silver medal was very respectful um and didn't decry this too much it was more an internal question Mm -hmm. and and you see this in sports that are continually evolving so another sport i do is uh jujitsu and this suffers from the same question wherein there are certain points given to certain positions in the sports sense okay um and some of those positions as the art was further refined to include things like leg locks where um people would put themselves in a more compromising position and they might actually be beneficial you wouldn't get points for those positions because they got introduced um as techniques after the sport had already kind of been codified and points were given to certain things so Mm -hmm. you might still win by submission but you wouldn't get points for taking a uh, and an advantageous leg locking position whereas yeah. you would get points for getting a top mount or a back mount or these sorts of things mm-hmm. and so there's a bit of a danger when you try to make it into a sport too soon before it's really uh, established because then people start to gamify the rule sets yeah. and they look just to win and they kind of forget about why the art was special in the first place
0: okay that makes sense yeah, there's, I, it seems you're very well versed in uh, a, a lot of the stuff surrounding this and, and uh, the, the actual competitions and stuff. Actually, I did have a question about the competition. Um, you you said that uh, kind of a brand new thing that they were introducing was saber fighting. Yes. Why, why is that new?
1: Well, I think it was new for in this sense because um, part of it is just what equipment do people practice with and people have. And they wanted to branch out, I think, into something that is more resembling like the HEMA-style fighting. And they felt that Saber was safe because it's not very Mm thrust-oriented as a fighting style. And the one real distinction between the Armored Combat and the HEMA style is the thrusting. Because with HEMA, we wear fencing masks, and so it's okay and safe to thrust. But with solid steel weapons and pull arms and this sort of thing, there's no safe way to stop the metal from... Um, being dangerous in a thrust if you're going to have historic-looking helmets. Yeah. Because the historic-looking helmets, they need to have eye slits, and you could maybe put a mesh in them, um, but nonetheless, uh, the, the rule is no thrusting. And so with Sabre, you can afford to have most of the way that the art form would have been done traditionally because saber is a very cut-centered art, um, and, and still allow people to... Um, wear their armor and so it's a bit of kind of an in-between sort of a halfway between the two disciplines Can okay. you mentioned some of the like surrounding disciplines that go along with these things uh this this sort of resurgence has also led to a lot of resurgence in armoring of historical armor making and blacksmithing um, of the particular style that is necessary for this this kind of work and a lot of these These disciplines, as we mentioned earlier, they they need some kind of profit motive or incentive to stay alive. Mm. People will only do it for so long as an intellectual exercise Mm -hmm. or even as a sort of, uh, like I mentioned, at this heritage town. And this is kind of what started me partly on this path, was uh, working at this heritage town and I learned how to be a blacksmith there. Uh, And so I did that for about seven years. And uh, then that sort of allowed me to transition into making my own armor Um, so and so there's a number of people in our community who try to sort of make everything themselves or at least as much as they can or is safe for them to do so Mm -hmm. and this sort of like making culture whether that's their clothes or their armor or their tents or their Uh, cutlery or their food and some people take it to great extremes to say oh no you wouldn't have that tomato salad because the Mm -hmm. tomatoes weren't uh brought to uh those came from the new world and therefore you wouldn't have those tomatoes um so people can take it as far as they want and uh so for me i find a lot of enjoyment in the blacksmithing and armoring side of things and that's that kind of is a, a something that brought sort of all manner of disciplines together because on the one hand you need to understand the fighting world, mm-hmm. to to make something that's going to be utilitarian. Yeah. And, um, excuse me, on the other hand, you also, in addition to doing the blacksmithing, I also did some leather work and some tinsmithing, which is sort of like historic sheet metal. Okay. And yeah. so the armoring is kind of like blacksmithing, and it's kind of like sheet metal work. And there's also a lot of leather work involved for the actual attachment, and allowing the components to fit together and it involves the the medieval combat understanding and then there's also sort of an understanding of anatomy and on top of that also sort of a artistic um level mm-hmm. where a lot of work was put into the embellishment either um, and you see this on the historic pieces that they also kind of um the the martial side influenced fashion and vice versa. Mm. And so, uh, one really good example of this is that, um, and you can kind of see this even today where, uh, people will wear military, um, equipment. Yeah. Uh, just, as sort of a fashion statement, whether they're mm-hmm. wearing their, their balaclavas or their schmogs or their combat boots and this yeah. sort of thing. And, so they take some of this and it influences the fashion and that sort of feeds back in. If you look at some suits, um, you'll see, uh, well I'll, t- I'll talk about the first the direction to the fashion and then back again. Okay. Um, uh, people in the later periods, um, when they didn't have suits of armor, they would be walking around with doublets and they had poopy sleeves mm-hmm. and uh, white billowy shirts and they would have their rapiers and sometimes they would get into a scuffle and they would cut their uh their opponent and this would lead to a slash in their doublet and their poofy white shirt would come out of it and people thought this looked really cool because of course that shoe shows that you were in a fight and you survived you got some cuts um and people have always looked for you know these kind of like battle scar type things Mm -hmm. um and there were sort of these uh uh, for instance, like in Russia, the Hussars, uh, they would practice and they would uh, cut each other in their fencing sort of just above the ear. And you get these like, lines slicing oh, okay. across the, uh, above the ear. And they would have their hair cut short to show off this sort of thing. Huh. And so people have these sort of versions of showing off their kind of battle scars. And then um, some people wanted to look like they were really good duelists and have been in a lot of fights. And so they would maybe cut a couple of spots in their doublet extra Mm -hmm. and pull some little bits out of their sleeves. And then some people would cut some more, even if they hadn't been in fights, and do a whole bunch. And then other people said, oh, those look really cool. And they started to uh, codify it in a sense where you would have these slashes that were sort of built into the doublets. And little poopy bits were pulled out Hmm. in a sort of regimented fashion. And then if you look at some of the armor, you will see this recreated in the armor. So on the sleeves the metal is built larger and there are uh, etched into the metal armor uh, what looks like little slashes mm-hmm. and kind of a poofing uh, effect. Huh. And so here you have this this the martial part influences the style of the fashion and then mm-hmm. the fashion re-influences the martial side again. That's... Or For instance they would have uh, wide shoes. You know, the same way nowadays we've got wide lapels, wide ties, and then narrow mm-hmm. ties. Yeah. So uh, there's only a couple ways that you can change things. You make them bigger, you make them smaller. Mm. And so with shoes, they had wide shoes for a while. And So if you look at King Henry's suit, it's amazing, it looks super cool, but then he's got these really stupid looking duck feet where <laughs> they're really wide at the toes. And then you'll see some other ones that are really narrow. So some like Gothic ones, they would have these really long, narrow toes. Yeah. And sometimes they, when they were on horseback and they didn't have to worry about walking, they would have these extensions that were added to the toes, and they would curl for maybe like, maybe about almost a foot of oh, extra yeah. curl oh, extending yeah. like off of your toe. And so you have this long, slender, tapering point yeah. that was attached to your sabatons. That's what we call our your foot armor okay and so you'd have these long pointy toes and then it would be fat toes and then long pointy toes and back and forth like this and so people would go out of their way to try to make whatever their their cool utilitarian life or death suit and they would go out of their way to to make it beautiful to them whatever Mm. they thought that looked like man
0: that's yeah i i haven't really thought about that with the with how they would they would i mean that that makes sense that uh, you would have kind of the things that that you think look look really cool your i i guess the fighters uh back in those times those would be like the manliest men and that's that's kind of where we get the idea of gentlemen and and
1: i guess that's that's, that's kind chivalry. of the, yeah but, so the, that comes from uh when you think of like a sh- chivalrous or chivalry of the gentleman uh that comes from Chevalier, which is French for knight. Okay. And so uh, so this sort of like ch- uh, chivalry, code of chivalry mm-hmm. comes from this like knightly code of how one ought to behave. Yeah. And that was both on the battlefield, but it also said, how are you going to behave in court? Uh, how are you going to conduct yourself in life? Mm-hmm. And their whole sort of structure was based around both um, martial and religious order. Okay. And so... And the two worked together to support the hierarchy of the feudal system. Mm-hmm. And so, at the top, you would have uh, you'd have God, and then God would then impart uh, supposedly uh, to onto the reigning monarch, mm-hmm. uh, who then uh, had this sort of divine right of kings. Yep. So, therefore, whatever he says goes, because God put him there. Yep. And oftentimes, they would try to evoke this idea of that they were sort of uh, next to God in the way that they dressed and oftentimes Mm. their armor would reflect this by being very reflective and they would be gilded and so you would have this armor of this person who looked awesome and so you have this sort of like other than human uh, skin layer yeah like an exoskeleton and and glowing and now you're glowing you're literally covered in gold and you're the sun is bouncing off of you and it's hard to imagine that you're you're not some kind of almost otherworldly demigod type Mm -hmm. character and then this sort of went through into the the royals and the various nobles and they were given then uh land to the knights and then the knights um they were given dominion over uh, a smaller let's say village and uh people there would then work and then they would pay taxes and if they didn't have money to pay taxes they would pay taxes in some kind of Uh, tribute based off whatever work they did. Mm -hmm. So maybe their work was that um, maybe all they did was they collected sticks from the forest and they would give a percentage of their sticks. uh, And that money would go to uh, support the knight. And so the knight was in charge not just of martial Mm -hmm. activity. Most of the time, he was more like a business landowner. Okay. And uh, his job was to manage and kind of be... um, is this sort of like subletting type system Mm -hmm. where everything was kind of owned by the king and the king kind of sublet it to his nobles and they kind of sublet it to the knights and the knights kind of sublet it further down the line yeah until you got to the peasants who were just kind of perpetually renting space and basically the only middle class were merchants everybody else was basically just working whatever their father did and um, they would sort of pass their kind of ties, if you will, up the line. Mm-hmm. And so uh, each, and everything was either kept in, in line either through the, the threat of violence, because you had these knights and there, you know, underneath them would be the man at arms and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if people didn't respect that, then maybe they respected the church. And this kind of like conflating of religion, with human military power i think was something that was a to my mind a really sad uh byproduct of instituting it as like a, a official sort of state yeah uh, religion and that legitimized the power but it also kind of legitimized any sort of abuses that yeah. might have come from that for sure and so i think so like for myself i'm a christian and uh, you you see that a sort of like more of the uh, pure and undefiled religion, let's say, to use a Christian phrase, mm-hmm. um, being taking care of widows and orphans in their distress, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that the incentive to do that sort of waned uh, under Rome. So originally, the uh, Rome saw Christianity as a threat, right? And they mm-hmm. were famous yeah. for persecuting Christians, but then um, that sort of turned with uh, an emperor uh, who decided that uh, Christianity was going to be an official state religion. And uh, his name was Constantine. And mm-hmm. so uh, that's who Constantinople was named after until it got conquered um, and then turned into yep. Turkey. Yep, uh, In Istanbul. So uh, with, with that, that kind of led to this shift. And um, therefore people went from being afraid uh, to pronounce the religion, but then now they kind of were afraid not to, mm. and um, that sort of uh, marriage between uh, the um, both the religious side of things and the martial side of things uh, led to this sort of interdependency, which we didn't really see separated until this, especially like in America with the separation of church and state, mm-hmm. and we see that in other parts of the world too, to some extent which then now means that there isn't really any kind of political incentive yeah um and i think that's a lot uh more fair in a sense although people have always tried to uh conflate the two and say like yeah we're fighting for god's side uh, but both sides are saying that so then you say well are you sure about that That...
0: Yeah, yeah for sure okay i uh I just realized that we we're almost in an hour, and almost i still an i still haven't asked you oh what's the my second question, my second question is uh what fruit has has this borne out in your life so obviously this this one kind of comes out naturally mm-hmm. i found uh so yeah, so you've like you've done blacksmithing, you've learned a ton of history, you enter tournaments and uh all sorts of stuff like that uh do you have any other thoughts of what other things uh have come through your interest in? In yes. Medieval so
1: I would think the first thing that uh, for me was that I never saw myself as an artist. My brother mm. was great uh, with artistry and I was dyslexic and I struggled to hold a pen. And uh, so I thought because I couldn't draw realistically in a two dimensional sense, I wasn't an artist. Mm. And it wasn't until I started working at this heritage town and was working in three dimensions that I realized hey I can actually make art and um, I I had a mentor there who encouraged me take pictures of everything that you make even though you think that they suck now um, and start to amass a portfolio and as I started to do that I started to put some things online and um, then people were saying hey actually that's really nice and I was like oh wow maybe I can actually do something that's artistic. Mm-hmm. And I've tried that with all different disciplines and always keeping my first project to show people so that I can, so you can see your origin story yeah And it's also so anybody that I'm mentoring I can show them, see this is how much I suck when I started. right mm. And so you should expect to suck when you start. Mm-hmm. But you can also see that the, there's a progression opportunity there. And a lot of times when people look at any of these disciplines, whether it's an art, um, and martial arts are a form of art mm-hmm. that uh, they see the end product and they think oh I can never do that mm. but you, you don't see the, the first pieces especially with things like martial arts or other kind of sports you don't see what they were like when they first started there isn't really any evidence the way that there is with the physical thing so I always yeah. try to keep my physical things to encourage my students in my day job I'm a teacher um, and so that was one was learning that hey I can actually uh, work with my hands and do things artistically. Um, and then another one is sort of like the camaraderie, the, mm, you know, yeah. people talk about this in the military, this kind of like the band of brothers that you know that they got your back in this sort of thing. Yeah, And um, part of that, I think uh, I've reminded, uh, my, my favorite movie is The Matrix. Um, uh, the sequels are not so great. Mm. Um, although there's one scene in the sequel that uh, I like that comes to this point which is uh neo enters and uh he's going to see the oracle and yeah there's this guardian who's this uh this asian gentleman and he fights him in this uh sushi restaurant i guess yeah, yeah. and at the end of this ridiculous fight, um he says that he had to know who he was that he was in fact mm. the one yeah, yeah and he said well he could have just asked and he says no you do not truly know someone until you fight them and okay. Okay. um i found that the best way to know somebody in a sense, other than just talking to them, is either fighting them or dancing with them. Mm. I've learned way more about people in a sort of true sense about who they are as a person. Yeah. Uh, and in a very short period of time, in the span of like one dance or one uh, fight, which is in a sense also a dance, you can know is this person a person who's afraid? Are they confident? Yeah. Are they a bit of a jerk? Are they uh, self centered? Mm-hmm. Are they empathetic? Are they, um, are they confident in themselves and are in their body? Uh, are they um, the type of person who you can trust? Mm-hmm. Uh, are they an honest person or, or are they trying to cheat? Are they trying to win or are they trying to win long term? Yeah. Both you and for them. Um, are they trying to better themselves and better you in the process? And as you do these sorts of things, it kind of brings out uh, honesty um, because there's really no way to figure it. Yeah. Uh, the way that you can with some martial arts that don't necessarily have a sparring component or a competitive component, um, you can learn them and convince yourself that you are really amazing. Mm-hmm. But until you actually had it tested with somebody, uh, you don't really know who you are or who they are. And so there's an element of knowing yourself and there's also an element of knowing these people as friends. And uh, being able to support each other in life outside of your your discipline, and then I would say uh, a third one has been that I think for a lot of people they need a reason to, to exercise, to get up in the morning, to yep. better themselves, mm-hmm. and if especially if you're going to do some kind of competition, it it gives you an incentive and a reason to train, um, and the training is not just on a physical level um, because. On a And even on a physical level, it has to be a very well rounded form of training so mm-hmm. if you If you just say you wanted to you know get jacked, you could lift a lot of weights, yep. you know do a lot of steroids, this sort of thing. but you would be compromising your health overall and you'd mm-hmm. be compromising your cardio and you 'd be compromising your flexibility as you did that mm-hmm. and so you have to uh, develop your health in a way that's well rounded that's enabling you to be flexible so that you can do these kicks and this sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, enabling you, and you're not pulling muscles, uh, to have the endurance and the cardio to go multiple rounds wearing all of this extra armor where mm-hmm. it's hard to breathe, uh, as well as having some some strength so that you can lift all these heavy things and lift yourself in this sort of condition where you've got all this armor on top of you, a few other people pushing on you. And even just to have enough, like, Rigidity and bone density and tendon density. So not getting injured. So there's lots of physical things that you need to improve mm-hmm. But There's also sort of like the mental component Yeah, not just in terms of like your mental health, which is important because you if you're going in in a sort of fearful way uh, Going in in a way where you're distracted um, mm-hmm. And you don't have that sort of mental health. That's also going to cause you to suffer in some regard uh, or if you're distracted, or if you are maybe you, you're abusing some kind of substance, uh, all of those things are going to be negatives to your performance. Yeah. But then there's also the mental side of learning the technique, which I think is really like fascinating, that it feels like a puzzle in a way some other um, arts or sports maybe aren't so much. Um, I, I, everyone is kind of a puzzle in its own way, mm-hmm. but I've always appreciated... The ones that involve some kind of thing. I struggle with weightlifting for this kind of reason because it feels like I know at the high level there's tactics, but at my level it feels like I'm just lifting this. But what is the point? Yeah. Whereas I could rock climb, for instance, and I could go until I could not hold on to the wall anymore, Mm -hmm. right? And not feel any like oh I'm making myself do this. Yeah. Because my brain is being stimulated the whole time because it's a puzzle. Yeah. When you're doing martial arts the puzzle is not just learning the techniques and trying to apply them but also applying to something that's resisting you. as if the rock wall was adapting as you went to go reach for a hold, that moved away right um yeah. and so you have to in real time be adapting to what the other person is giving you as well as imposing your own strategy as well as any techniques that you might have learned but trying to do it in real time with a resisting opponent and so mm-hmm. there's a puzzle there and if you can win that kind of mental research battle um, especially when finding those those things is not just a matter of going to class the way that it might be with some arts where it's very clear what to do mm-hmm. you just go to the class they'll teach you the stuff they know much better than you i found at my level having been doing this uh, about a decade now uh, that i'm teaching other people mm-hmm. and so if i want to get better it's not enough to, for me to just go drill over and over again Mm -hmm. uh, because I already know the techniques I know. Uh, If I want to get better, I actually have to do some research. And the interesting thing is that the research is not just readily available, but you have to go dig for it. And then there's sort of like an understanding of the history of reading the old school manuals. And for the people who are at the um, cutting edge of it, for instance, there was just a new uh, fight book just released um as in they just rediscovered another manuscript that had been lost for hundreds of years in some you know european mansion or museum rather. so rather cool. um and so we got oh there's a new tome yeah that we have discovered and everybody's looking at the pictures and trying to you know uh, translate this old you know uh, language that almost nobody can read anymore mm-hmm. and so we've got our new pause on a new one um and so on all of these levels if you if you if you want to be successful, you kind of need to improve on every discipline, you know, on a physical level, on mm-hmm. a mental level, on a spiritual level, on a, all these things. Uh, and so it kind of asks the best version of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in many sense that that has helped me um, not so much as just like a distraction from the you know, pain and struggle of life, but uh, it gives you a new way to frame it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of the times people in life, especially in our sort of modern society, we try to um, look for panaceas, we look for an easy fix. Mm. Um, or we look to just surround ourselves with comfort and it's very easy to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you want to find something that is a struggle, something that's going to push you, you have to seek it out, whether that's, you're going to go out into the wilderness, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and live off the land for weeks camping or maybe it's whatever it is for you, but you have to seek out some kind of adversity because if you're, if you're trying to hide from adversity, you'll be successful, mm-hmm. but then you'll meet with a new adversity, which is probably worse. Whether yeah. that is that you're lonely or you're you're depressed, you're not confident in yourself or your ability, mm-hmm. and so you're fighting different battles, whereas if you willfully take on a burden of some kind, it teaches you how to act in the face of adversity and to say, "What what is it giving me right now? Right now... You know, I I tried this attack over here and they blocked it. But when they blocked it, they made a new opening. Yeah. And I have to look for that, well, what is that new opening? So I'm capitalizing on the opportunities that are present. But if I was just fearful and I never threw any shot, there wouldn't be a new op- mm-hmm. opening that was made. Yeah. And so it's kind of an invitation to dance when you throw your first attack. You see what openings are going to be made and you respond to that. And I think it's the same in life that um, if you are sitting, waiting passively, uh, hoping not to get hit, then you're already compromised yourself and you are gonna get hit. Yeah. And so, if you say, well, what is the, what are these like the suffering, the battle in the world, um, and take it on. And if you've taken on those things for yourself, then maybe you can take them on for uh, you know, other people in your state, whether that's your spouse, your family, mm-hmm. your community. And now you can be a sort of bastion, uh, a support, uh, a bulwark against these sort of troubles. And um, and I think that has given me some uh, recont- recontextualizing of, of those sorts of things in life. So I would say the fruit has been physical level, mm-hmm. but also the how you look at life. And if I was to trade the because I, I didn't do this stuff to learn how to, you know, self-defense or yeah. beat people up. Otherwise, yeah, I, I don't carry a sword around. Exactly. With me On a regular, mm-hmm. uh, I have many swords in my house, but I have no sharp ones. Mm. Um, so, uh, I I learned this these things, and the, if I could trade all of the knowledge that I have about how to do combat mm-hmm. uh, for. And I, or if I could choose between... I only got to keep one. Either mm-hmm. everything that I gained from pursuing these disciplines versus the knowledge of how to do them, mm-hmm. I would rather have what I gained from doing them than the knowledge of how to do them. Yeah. Because I'm probably never going to get in a sword fight. Probably. Uh, I'll probably uh, never have a full-time job being an armorer, um, but the, the opportunities... Uh, it has availed to me um, have also I think been really beneficial and given me something to give back and so as mm-hmm. I mentioned I'm a teacher and yeah. uh, the thing I find most fun is teaching so in my club uh, I'm happy to have other people you know, be the captains and all this sort of thing yeah. my favorite part is to take new people and show them the ropes and I also bring people over to uh, my garage and teach them how to do some blacksmithing and armoring um and that's kind of the most fun for me and so it really isn't about what i've gained but what i can give to other people that i think is the the biggest fruit Mm -hmm. that's
0: yeah that's really awesome that uh uh, just made me think of uh, a quote from uh do do you happen to know jordan peterson yes yeah yeah he's uh one of the things that he says i think it's in 12 rules for life or something Mm -hmm. like that but he says find the heaviest thing you can you can find and and lift that and Mm -hmm. then Kind of kind of what you were talking about of, yeah. of uh, you have to find that adversity because by lifting that heavy thing you that allows you to grow that's that's a really awesome fruit I, I, I think what I told you before that this was just for fun, just for fun, this whole podcast thing. I think maybe I was lying. I think I think I want to find the things to inspire other people and and finding people's passions, what they're excited about, and the reasons behind that. That can that can spark something in somebody else. For sure. So yeah, I think I think. You've you've really you've inspired me. I well, want to lift something up.
1: Anybody's listening that they're they're inspired to go find something, whatever it is for you that is uh, a challenge, uh that you enjoy the challenge. And um and as you grow in that, um, see how you can help other people and help lift them up. Um but the lifting up is not so much um and I'll this end with this. This mm. is uh, this is another. Uh, you mentioned Jordan Peterson. He he recounts this um, this sort of story mm-hmm. about this church uh, that was on this hilltop. And uh, people to get onto the hilltop, they would go up uh, with all their ailments. Okay. And there was up at the top uh, a place where there's all these sort of canes and crutches that were left there. Okay. Where people had. Struggled their way up to this church, and they had been healed. There was some revival, some ministry that was happening that was causing these people to get healed. Mm-hmm. And um, then later, much later, now this is um, uh, a sort of a historic church. Um, and for ease of accessibility, uh, they they put in a paved uh, road to drive up, kind of like the back okay. of the hill. Yeah. And so now you can just drive up the back and get off uh, out of your thing and just hop in. Hmm. But there's something lost even though we think, well, we should really make something that's really accessible, particularly mm-hmm. with people with disabilities, so mm-hmm. that they can just drive up. There's something about the struggle of going up with your cane mm-hmm. uh, to the place in order to get healed. Yeah. As a sort of poetic metaphor, you almost don't want to help people too much. Yeah. Right? And so what is helping people more? To help somebody as in you're going to go with them, help them with the next step, you know, their arms around your shoulder, the other end of the cane, and they're walking their way up. Is that more helpful or is it more helpful to pave a road and just drive them up and drop them at the door? Hmm. And I think it's more helpful to walk with them as they head towards uh, whatever their salvation is, let's Mm -hmm. say. And so um, it's help people to lift the load that is as heavy as they can load. And as they are carrying their their weight, their burden, Mm -hmm. their suit of armor, their muscles will get stronger. Yeah. And not just their physical ones
2: mm-hmm
0: that i think that's a fantastic pl- uh, place to end so yeah great
1: thanks so much for having
0: me yeah uh and thank you listeners for listening to the what the heck is this the passion fruit podcast and uh yeah tune in next time to hear an interview with somebody else and uh hear some other passions and hopefully get inspired with you folks. all of I- you the same